Hello everyone, Dr. Chris Martinson here with chapter three of the crash course. This is a big one. You are not going to want to miss this because this is about the Federal Reserve. This is the headwaters of the Nile, as it were, Lake Victoria in Africa. If you want to know what's been going on with all the floods of money and credit and what's really going on, you have to understand the Fed. And this is just a really important, important chapter. Because if you don't get the Fed, all the rest is just noise. You won't understand why you are like a rat in a cage, what's going on, how the future is going to unfold, all of that. So let's get started right now. We'll go there. We're going to be discussing here this thing called the Fed. There are just three things I need you to know about the Federal Reserve. The first, it's not a federal agency, big misconception. It's a private corporation. It has shareholders. We'll go through some of that. Uh, it's very important to, to get that. So it's they call it Federal Reserve, but it, it's like calling Federal Express. That doesn't have anything to do with the federal government either. A lot of people think the Federal Reserve is there at the behest of the people of the nation there to serve the people. It doesn't. It serves its corporate shareholders, and that's the nature of a corporation, right? <clears throat> You'd expect Federal Express to meet the needs of its shareholders, and you should also expect the Federal Reserve to meet the needs of its shareholders. Corporations are a very specific structure in this overall story. Second thing, Federal Reserve, it has immense power, immense power over your life, but nobody at the Federal Reserve, nobody is elected. The chairman is appointed. The other people serving at the Fed in various capacities are either hired by the Federal Reserve itself or selected by the member banks that are the shareholders. And so that's how this whole thing happens. So if you understand incentives and human behavior and all of that, there is literally no more powerful function in the world right now than to create money out of thin air, to have that particular power. And that's the power that the Federal Reserve has at this point in time. Also, and finally, it operates like a reverse Robin Hood organization, meaning it takes from the many to give to the few. So you can see here under the Fed's tutelage from the year 2000, looking at this chart down below here, you can see um, in Ben Bernanke's career is the length of that black arrow right there. Look at the total wealth and the disparity in wealth between the top 0.1% in that red line up top, the remaining 1% in the purple line down below, way down there is the 2% to 10%. So this is everybody from the 90 to the 98% most wealthy decile or in, in the United States. And then the green line is the next 40%. By the way, the bottom half of the country, the bottom 50% does not even show up on this chart. It, it's just, it doesn't exist. Um, either has negative wealth or doesn't show up. So while the Federal Reserve has been busy bailing everybody out since the year 2000, look what they've really accomplished. The 1% done pretty well. You can see that their average holdings went from about 8, um, 8 million to maybe, I don't know, what's that? 20 million in a household. But look at the top 0.1%. Ooh, la, la. They went from about $40 million per household up to about $140 million per household. That's who got the most largesse. And who did that? Why did that happen? If you understand how the Federal Reserve prints money, puts it into circulation, they're really handing it to one very, very narrow class of people. And that's their job. That's who they are. And that's what they do. And most people don't know this. And so there ought to be robust debates, which is like, you know, when the Federal Reserve shows up in, at, at its Senate testimony, at least some senator ought to say, 
I see what you think you're doing here. You say that your dual mandates, Federal Reserve, are price stability and full employment. I get that. But don't you see I have a third mandate, which is make the wealthy wealthier? Because that's what's happening here. And by the way, this is not because the wealthier are smarter, are better, are more elite, uh, add more to society. They're getting wealthier because the Federal Reserve prints money and puts it out into an ecosystem that is dominated, obviously, by the wealthy elites. So they get most of those gains. So that's how the system works. If you want to understand how the Federal Reserve really works, how it came into being, you could do no worse and no no better than to get this particular book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. It is a gripping and accurate read by G. Edward Griffin. Great guy. Um, and it's all factual. And if you really want to understand the Federal Reserve, and you do, and you want to understand how bailouts keep happening over and over again, and you do, this is the book. Can't recommend it enough. This is the book that tore the covers off of my eyes. This must have been summer of 2004, maybe 2003. Somewhere in that zone, I got my hands on this thing and it changed how I see the world. <clears throat> now, remember in chapter two on money and banking we and debt, we did talk about how your local bank can take $1,000 of initial deposit under a 10% fractional reserve system and turn that into $10,000 of both credit and debt within a system. So the, Fed, the, the local bank loans money into existence. And in that loaning process, it creates one unit of debt and one unit of money. It doesn't create interest. It just creates the principal balance. The interest has to come from somewhere else. So how do we get the interest in the system? And we answer that by, by asking and answering the question about where did that first $1,000 come from? See over there, that, that, that little stack way over on the side there? Yeah, that stack way over there. <clears throat> where did that come from? That's what this chapter is all about. So we got to talk about where this little stack of Benjis came from here. And we're going to have to go through a slight process here, which talks about how the Federal Reserve puts cash, base money, hot money out into the system for the banks and you and I to begin working our magic on, right? Expanding it, borrowing more of it into existence, all of that. But the first cash in the system comes like this. Okay, here's how dollars get birth. First up, if you do get a dollar bill, and I don't have one on me, I should have a shame on me, but if you look at it again, if you read it, it doesn't say U.S. Treasury on there, except the Treasury Secretary signs it. It says it's a Federal Reserve note. It is a note, a liability, therefore, of the Federal Reserve system. But here's how those dollars from the Federal Reserve come into being. And I'm not talking just physical cash. Physical cash, you know, the actual physical paper cash, that's a small part of this story. Most of this is electronic equivalents that get clickety-clicked into existence, and it starts and works like this. So U.S. Congress needs money. I know, I know. They, they, they somehow have forgot to live within their means, and so they need some money. So what do they do? Well, they go out and they go to the Treasury and they say, hey, U.S. Treasury, you got any sweet, sweet cash for all these programs we would like to spend money on? Treasury says, nah, we're, we're kind of tapped out, but, but we could get it for you as long as you appropriate the funds. Congress appropriates. Treasury says, all right, we'll, we'll raise some of this. So what do they do? <clears throat> they go ahead and they um, put this thing, uh, a bond out there. Sorry, it's cut off, but you can see that that's a, a bond, a, a bond. Let me see if I can move that. Um, anyway, so this is a bond. The, these are treasury bonds, treasury bills, all of that. 
And then the bonds get auctioned off and who buys them? Well, big banks might buy them, right? They buy them uh, at these primary auctions and then they buy them for cash and they put the cash, that's that dollar bill, back into the U.S. Treasury. So no money's been created so far, right? In the sense that the big banks had that cash on hand, typically. But then the big banks are like, hey, we got a lot of these things. And the Federal Reserve says, you know what? We're going to take some of those off of your hands. And um, so that's what's going to happen in a second. Um, But first, after all that cash from the big banks over there goes in the U.S. Treasury, yeah, they write checks, uh, defense contractors, agriculture subsidies, social security, you know, all the stuff government pays money on. Okay. Now, about where does the Federal Reserve come into this? Well, every so often, they siphon one of those bonds off of one of the big banks, and then they give the big bank, well, cash, credit. They credit the account of the big bank with cash. Where did that cash come from? Where did the Federal Reserve get the cash that it credited to the big bank to buy the bond. They didn't. Trick question. They just clickety-clacked it into existence. They, the, the Federal Reserve says, you know, we would like to get a billion dollars of these bonds uh, onto our balance sheet. We'll buy them, and we're going to buy them off of a big bank like Citibank. Hey, Citibank, clickety-click, uh, you just had a billion dollars show up in an account of yours, and we're taking these treasury bonds you have in that account, and we own them now. That is how dollars are birthed in our system. It's overly complicated, but what just happened was, and I, you can't, nobody can answer this, like, why wouldn't the Treasury just do that all by itself? Why does it need this whole rigmarole right here? Who gave the Federal Reserve the power to clickety-click billions and billions and now trillions and trillions of dollars into existence? Because the Federal Reserve does not have any money. <laughs> it creates it out of thin air. And that's um, the money printing process. So, so that is, this is, this is, by the way, this is needlessly complex. It's made complex so that most people will tune out by now. I'm sure I've lost a couple of viewers by now. Like, what is this? this is, I don't get it, right? But it's not that complicated, right? Congress needs money. They go to the Treasury. Treasury, you know, creates these things called Treasury bonds. The bonds are then bought by these big banks who then round trip them off to the Federal Reserve, taking a little cut, a little taste, a little big. Well, big for the big banks, right? In that process, because performing a valuable service. Uh, and then the Federal Reserve just creates money that then flows back into the system. That is the system. That's how it works right there. You might think, nah, can't be true. <laughs> Chris, that's that's crazy talk. Um, well, in uh, a little thing called putting it simply, and, and that's a screenshot down there for one of Mike Maloney's videos. Uh, and uh, I think they took that picture at one of the uh, Federal Reserve Banks. That, that's awesome. That's from Hidden Secrets of Money. Awesome series if you haven't seen it. This is uh, from a, a publication called Putting It Simply by the Boston Federal Reserve, which says, quote, when you or I write a check, there must be sufficient funds in our account to cover the check. But when the Federal Reserve writes a check, there is no bank deposit on which that check is drawn. When the Federal Reserve writes a check, it is creating money, end quote. Well, that is a serious power. Wouldn't you think this would be something we should talk about and ask some questions? And like when the Federal Reserve creates, to be able to create money is an extraordinary power. It means 
that when you do create that money, whoever gets hold of it first has an exorbitant privilege in the story that when you print it up maybe and you create money, maybe there ought to be serious audit trails and questions about when, why, and how that money is created. None of that happens in our system. Federal Reserve has been unaudited at, at the transaction level for decades. I can't find any record of it, of it ever having been fully audited. So it has this capability of writing checks, creating money in the process of writing those checks. And we don't actually know what or where all those checks went exactly. We, we don't know. Um, they do publish a, a balance sheet, they, they, uh, a flow of funds. There, there's various things that we can look at, but these are just documents that they tell us and we have to trust that they're true and accurate and complete. Otherwise, I can't verify that the Federal Reserve is doing what it says it's doing and or maybe that it's doing things that's not telling us about doing. I have no way of knowing for sure, as does anybody at this point. All right. So because of this, we can say that all dollars are debt, right? Because the way a dollar comes into circulation here is the Federal Reserve takes a piece of debt off of the system. Now, that could be treasury bonds. It could be mortgage-backed securities. It doesn't matter. The point is, is that when the Federal Reserve is creating dollars in the system, it has an offsetting amount of debt on this side of the system. So that's what we're looking at down here is the Federal Reserve balance sheet. I have three things on the asset side, three things on the liability side. The assets of the Federal Reserve are the debt, the bonds, the mortgage-backed securities that they have purchased, right? And purchased with what? Well, with one of their magic checks, right? Which is the liability under the Federal Reserve would be those things, the dollars that they actually produce. So, so that's how the whole system works. All of banking is, is assets and liabilities. So the asset of the Federal Reserve are the U.S. Treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities. The liabilities of the Federal Reserve is all the money it put into circulation. But for you or I, a liability is an actual liability. For the Federal Reserve, it's not really a, what's the liability? I mean, what, what could happen? Somebody comes up to it and says, I don't like this dollar bill anymore. And then what? What actually happens if, if you try and redeem that liability or call it nothing? Uh, it's just, it's, it's a non-liability liability. But still, for the sake of purposes and appearances, this is how it stretches out. Like right down there, this is how this goes. All right, so all dollars are debt. Now, if you understood this little wheel of complexity right here, from the issuance of a bond to the way the dollars are created out of thin air, all of that, if you got all of that, congratulations. Give yourselves a hand, a round of applause, because that is as complicated as it's going to be. If you understand that process of the Federal Reserve creating money out of thin air, boy, you're in a really good position to understand all sorts of things that are happening now and are going to happen in the future. But the really critical part of that whole thing was me saying this, that we have a debt-based money system where the debt, all money, is loaned into existence. The problem is, is that the interest isn't loaned into existence. So what happens if you loan, let's make it simple. Let's pretend there's 100% interest. Let's say I, I, I loan out a billion dollars and somebody's going to have to pay me 100% interest. So they're going to have to pay me back $2 billion. But when I created that loan for a billion dollars, I only created $1 billion. Okay, we can pay back the principal, but where's the billion dollars for interest going to come from? Well, nowhere. It can't. So the system then, if you understand that statement, you now understand why this is true, that there is always more debt than money in the system. And it's because of the interest component. We have a debt-based money system that is either expanding it has to expand infinitely forever or it's busy collapsing. 
And you can detect that by looking at this feature right here, which is that there is always more debt than money in the system. And it's accelerating away from each other. And as interest rates go higher and higher, it's going to accelerate even faster. This is the nature of the system at this point in time, right? So this is it. Now, this is a wholly unsustainable system, which we talked about in money and banking, right? Even Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, said this in a recent Senate testimony. He said, the problem is that we're on a path where the debt is growing substantially faster than the economy. And that, by definition, is in the long run unsustainable. It's also true that we are in a situation where the debt is growing faster than the money that's supposed to service the debt. That's also an unsustainable problem in the long run. But he's also correct. The debt is growing a lot faster than the economy. Our debts are compounding at about 8% a year. The economy is growing, if we're lucky, at 3% a year. That gap of 5% is every 14 years means the gap is twice as large as it was the prior part. It's like it's called a doubling time. All right. So that's uh, the nature of the system. It's fundamentally unsustainable. That's why I do what I do. Once you understand this, you understand that you are in an unsustainable monetary system and you know the importance of money as the social fabric, the glue, the contracts that keep this whole thing together. When you know that that whole system is by its very design unsustainable, it is a math problem then you have to begin taking other preparations for what you want to do and where you're going to be and what skills you want to have and who you want to know as friends and how you've stored your wealth and the, and the, the, where your food comes from. All of these things are things you're going to want to know about because when the system breaks, lots of things break. Now, I might be wrong, but I'm not confused. This is how I see the world. Now, the Fed balance sheet Printer goes brr, right? So this is a really important chart. This is the Fed balance sheet. So when I said the Fed writes a check and goes out, it creates money. So the Fed's balance sheet, this is its assets here. And let me see if I can get my drawing tool up real quick. Yeah, so um, uh, let's use the highlighter. So this is total assets. So remember, the asset for the Federal Reserve is a bond. It's a debt. Mortgage-backed security, uh, treasury bond, bill, note something like that. So those are its assets. So we're looking at its assets, but what was the other side of that? How did it get these assets? Well, it wrote the magic check, which created money on the other side. So when you're looking at the Fed balance sheet, even though what we're technically looking at is the assets, understand there's a exactly equivalent graph that shows the liability side, which is all the cash the Fed put out into the world. So this is fascinating. Look at this. See, here we are coming in pre-great financial crisis. And we're coming in and we're, this is, you can see there's a slow, steady expansion of monetary aggregates down here, right? The Fed's slowly expanding its balance sheet. And it got up to about $880 billion. And then, oh no, emergency, the great financial crisis. And then it did this. Ben Bernanke, like, oh, we have to save the system. Think what terrible things would have happened if we hadn't printed $1.4 trillion in a couple of months. The entire country had only required $880 billion of Fed credit creation, money printing, through its entire history, from the founding all the way on up through, even from the founding of the Federal Reserve in 1913, all the way up until 2008 or 9, $800 billion. Then in a couple of months, suddenly it required 
$2.3 trillion. Like it was a massive giant bailout of the entire system. And, and, uh, and then of course, what happened next? Well, you know, they tried to sort of reel it back in, but they really couldn't because now the system's really stoked on this monetary heroin. Oh, everybody's real excited that the rich are getting stinking richer, right? This is during this time is when I showed you that chart of the wealth gap just starts to explode. Of course it did. The Fed printed well over a trillion and a quarter dollars out of thin air in a couple of months and threw it out into the system. And oh, who was there to siphon that up? Uh, Team Elite was there, right? And so they loved that. And then, of course, it's always a bad time to, to be prudent. So then, oh, oh no, another emergency here in 2011. And then they tried to hold steady for a while. And then, oh no, another huge emergency in 2013 and throughout 2014. You probably weren't reading about this, but I was tracking it at the time. And then, and then we come along here and Janet Yellen was actually trying to, to, to be sensible here a little bit. And then under Jay Powell, it started to come down. And then right here in 2019, see that little bump right there? That's even before COVID. There was a big panic. And in the what's called the repo markets, uh, involved story. But all of this, this whole era right here, is just grotesque monetary and therefore social engineering. I'll tell you what that means in a minute. But the Fed's picking winners and losers here. It decided, hey, we're going to throw the young under the bus, millennials, screw you. Hey, we're going to give money to boomers. Hey, we're going to give money to big institutions and private equity and giant banks. Hey, we're going to really shaft Main Street here. Um, so that was a bunch of decisions they made. And again, they're not elected officials. The Federal Reserve is a bunch of appointed or selected or hired guns for the banking cartels. That's it. That's that's the whole thing, right? Okay. But then COVID. And here's like, that's unbelievable unbelievable what happened there you've never seen anything quite like it and then even after covid was over it didn't matter they got really addicted to this monetary printing and then tried to reel it back a little bit right here and it didn't go well and the banks like svb started to fail and then they did this little that little hook there which is only 400 billion dollars in two weeks throwing it back in this is very easy to predict this is all going this way irrevocably because it has to it's a math problem. I don't envy actually the Fed to try and figure out how to undo any of this because I don't think you can. You know, it's just keep the party going until it breaks. And but when it breaks, the higher you are, the worse it's going to be. Like like letting this whole thing sort of fail back here in 2008, that would have been like falling off a, a step ladder. To let it fail from here now is like a 23 foot extension ladder fully extended and we're over some rocks. Like this is going to be extra painful if we try and uh, allow this to, you know, normalize back down again. So guess what is not going to happen. So here's a couple key concepts up through this point of the crash course. Um, first, all dollars are backed by debt. Okay. All dollars. That's how they come in the system. But because the interest is not also just created into the system, it means that perpetual growth is a requirement of our current system of money. Not a requirement of you or me or the future generations or what the world needs or what the insect populations need. It's not a requirement of anything except the system of money we have demands this perpetual growth because it has a math problem built into it. How it is constructed I probably made a ton of sense in 1913. Here in 2023, 
really doesn't make any sense at all. It's a total nonsense system, but nobody can really talk about that. So we're going to keep driving it, pretending as if it's a reasonable system until it breaks. That's why this chapter on the Federal Reserve is so important to understand. So, well, what, what, what is this Fed thing then? What, what is it? <clears throat> That's its prime building right there. Um, and uh, it's just got offices in it. And it's just people sitting behind computer terminals. Nothing fancy. It's just people with computer terminals typing, typing numbers into, into screens, right? All right. Federal Reserve. <clears throat> First, it's, as I mentioned, it's neither federal and it doesn't have any reserves. It doesn't. It just creates when it writes a check, it creates money. That's all it has to do. Um, so it doesn't actually have either of those things, Federal Reserve, right? Um, this is interesting. It was passed on December 23rd, 1913. And they say here, quote, it took many months and nearly straight party line voting. But on December 23rd, 1913, the Senate passed and President Woodrow Wilson signed the Federal Reserve Act. The need for a central bank became painfully evident, they say here in United States Senate history, which is painfully bad, became painfully evident during the financial panic of 1907 when the stock market collapsed and banks failed and credit evaporated. Oh, no. You know what? That's a good thing sometimes. It's okay. It's it's okay. It's okay that banks fail. You know, other businesses are restaurants fail. It's unfortunate, but life goes on, right? But somehow... The bankers, when they got a hold of their favorite politicians, are like, it's unacceptable that banks should ever fail again. So they came up with this thing called the Federal Reserve Act. Um, and uh, Nelson Aldrich, uh, a traitor to the country, Rhode Island Republican senator, awful human being, uh, proposed a system that would be run by private bankers who would act as federal agents. What could go wrong? <laughs> right? What could go right? Now, about that panic in 1907 that proved that we desperately needed a Federal Reserve. Would it surprise you to find out that that panic was actually initiated by the same banks that actually really wanted a Federal Reserve to be created? Because then they could consolidate all of their power and do it extraordinarily, which is exactly what happened. So, hey, throw a couple of uh, innocent people under the bus. Hey, maybe even make a couple couple uh, extra dollars along the way and get yourself a couple of senators lined up like Aldrich here. And next thing you know, you have a Federal Reserve Act. So... This is what it looks like. Um, I don't know, maybe 100 pages of, of stuff. It's not, not all that particularly difficult to understand. But when you read it, it, this reads like the Articles of Incorporation for a corporation. This is not an act per se. It defines how governance is going to happen. It defines how people are going to be, you know, how the regions are going to be divvied up, what the rules are going to be for arbitrating disputes, what would happen in the event of individual bankruptcies, what will happen if banks didn't come into the fold and weren't part of this system. This is an incorporation document. That's what the Federal Reserve Act really is. Um, and of course, you know, they're very proud of this and said, ah, President's signature enacts currency law. Wasn't a currency law. This was an extraordinary accumulation of power and you can see here a little tricky to read but this says december 24th 1913 so um yeah it's a big news but who's who's out there think about who's actually in the house and senate chambers in uh on december 23rd 1913 and and uh and then also you know christmas eve um so at any rate it's uh it was it was uh, it was pretty well rammed through. And by the way, it was by a vote of 43 to 25 senators at the time in 1913. I guess that was the count. 
but uh, that's what we got. So when you look at this, you say, people say, well, you'd say it's not federal. I mean, who owns it? It's a corporation. Well, the member banks, they, they had to pony up the seed capital for this thing. Congress, Senate passed a law, Woodrow Wilson signs it in, but look at what happened here. It said that, um, it says, uh, federal reserve banks are to be organized and fixed and, and fix the geographical limits of the federal reserve districts. Every national banking association within that district shall be required within 30 days after notice from the organizing committee, organization committee to subscribe to the capital stock of such Federal Reserve Bank in a sum equal to 6% of the paid-up capital stock in surplus of that bank, of such bank, one-sixth of the subscription to be payable on call of organization committed, blah, blah, blah. So they're basically saying, look, we're going to create this Federal Reserve System and we need we need your money to do it. <laughs> Member banks, right? And they all ponied up because it's actually a pretty sweet deal because they also get paid a, a handsome dividend on that particular capital stock that they purchased. So, so they were required to, you know, provide the equity for the founding of the central bank. Cause remember in 1913, it's still constitutionally true that only gold or silver shall be money. So they hadn't quite gotten to the point where they could just print money willy nilly. It still required this stuff called gold and silver to be in a reserve of some kind. And so they called that in from all of the um, member banks who are going to be part of this. But again, as you read this thing, if you do read this Federal Reserve Act, this is this is an article of incorporation for a corporate endeavor. It's what it looks like. In this case, a banking charter is kind of what it reads like. So let's talk about a few economic mileposts here. First, the Federal Reserve is created in 1913 because of the panic of 1907. Gold is still money in this country. So is silver. <clears throat> Roosevelt has to take the U.S. off of uh, the gold standard in 1933. So the Federal Reserve is created. And 20 years later, the United States government is completely bankrupt. It forfeits all of its gold holdings to the Federal Reserve. So if you follow this story along, the Federal Reserve is created in the aftermath of a panic. And within 20 years, the entire nation is bankrupted. Um, and, uh, thanks. Awesome thing. That federal reserve way to go. And if you look at it today, you find that literally 100% of the nation's gold stock is not held by the U S government at Fort Knox. It is, but it doesn't own it. It actually shows up on the balance sheet of the federal reserve as its asset because it had to loan money to the U S government. And so it required, uh, the gold as collateral in order to do that. So <laughs> that's, that's pretty good. You know? found this thing. And then 20 years later, the whole country is like in its, in its debt. And that only continued on and on after that. Cause the point of banking is not to make loans is to have loans outstanding. The bank, nobody wants to, your loan to be paid back. Right. And they have to go make another one. The point of a loan is it encumbers your asset and makes you then have to work and contribute to whoever that entity is that owns your note, your mortgage or your treasury bonds or bills. That's the point of banking. The point of banking is, is to never have the, the debts be paid back. You always want those debts increasing. That's what this whole scheme was that was put together that we are calling the Federal Reserve. It's pretty interesting how it came together. Very smart people um, put it in there. So when Roosevelt <clears throat> takes office, it uh, $21 was the exchange rate for an ounce of gold. And then after the country got bankrupted, they seized all the, they confiscated all the gold of citizens. Um, but thereafter, it turns out it would take $35 to, 
to buy an ounce of gold. So what they did was when you go from 21 to 35, that is a huge devaluation of the dollar against the reference, which was gold. Used to only take $21, now it takes $35, right? That is a big devaluation. So when the U.S. government devalued that, they were able to get lots of dollars for the amount of gold that it had, and that was the exchange it made with the Federal Reserve, and that was a vast instant devaluing. So people who um, were holding on to dollars at that point in time, and so the step one was to confiscate the gold from citizens, right? And so the government took it all and then told you that, it, oh yeah, if you want to buy gold going forward, it's going to be $35, not 21. Um, oh, you don't have gold, you only have dollars? Yeah, sorry. So that's that's how that worked. Now, this is relevant and important because back then gold was money. All right. So now we can say, okay, Federal Reserve's created in 1913. U.S. government actually goes bankrupt and has to ditch and sell off all of its gold to the Federal Reserve in 33. And then there was this Bretton Woods Agreement that was born in 1944. And this is right after, towards the end of World War II, and it enshrined a brand new monetary order in the world. And Bretton Woods is just, just a hotel up in New Hampshire. There it is. That's Bretton Woods. You could go visit it, stay in it. Very nice rooms there. Uh, pl good place. So the Bretton Woods Agreement is named after the place, the facility where the event was held. Uh, there it is. So that's how that came about. All right. So as we come along then, and then Nixon slammed the gold window in 1971. That was the last tethering of the U.S. dollar to gold. So up until 1971, all the way from, you know, all the way prior if somebody outside of the United States wanted to come and secure some gold in exchange for dollars they were holding because the United States is exporting dollars, they would just do it at the official exchange rate. At this case, when Nixon slammed the gold window, it was $35 for an ounce of gold. Well, uh, you know, Nixon, you know, they were conducting this little thing called the Vietnam War. They were deficit spending like crazy. And a bunch of countries, particularly France at the time, came forward and said, you know what, we don't want all these dollar things that you're printing. We don't trust them anymore. We'd rather have gold. And all this gold was hemorrhaging out of the United States. And so Nixon had to slam that gold window. So that's that's what he did. He came forward and he said, yeah, you know what, you can no longer trade your dollars for gold. Tough nuts. You, you have to have dollars now. You can just keep those, right? And so where it was uh, $35 would get you that ounce of gold. Well, it took a lot more shortly thereafter. It took, you know, more and more and more and more and more and more and more dollars to, to get uh, one of those ounces of gold. And so that brings us now to what I can condense this all into, which is a very brief history of U.S. money. Once upon a time, gold could be exchanged for dollars. And the amount of dollars in circulation were actually a function of how much gold you held. Afterwards, there was no tether. There's no, there's no, no backing. Now, the dollars don't read a United States note. They don't say pay to the bearer upon demand, any fixed amount of silver or gold. They just say Federal Reserve note. That's it. That's the whole thing. That's, that's it. That's it. That, that's, the, that's the game. So with gold backing, there's a tether that holds back, restrains, takes away the baser instincts of men and women in power who would just prefer to spend without limit and provides a, a restraint to that. 
And then you actually have to make sacrifices. You can't cut taxes and conduct a war. You can't build a bridge and, you know, do everything else. You have to make trade-offs and, and nobody in politics likes those. So politically very popular to sever the connection. And then there's a, a longer thing, a story that comes that we've talked about at Peak Prosperity around, well, then if the dollars are backed by nothing, how does that work? Well, in fact, that's not quite accurate. They were backed by oil and the power and the might of the U.S. military as a combined set of concepts. And that's called the petrodollar. You really should find out more about the petrodollar because it's a, it's a big story. All right. So this is it. That's the brief history of U.S. money before and after. Before, a tether, gold. After, how many, how many can we create, right? And create they did. And that's when we saw the Federal Reserve's balance sheet just, woo, trillions all at once. That cannot happen under a gold standard, right? So here we are. Now, the consequences of giving bankers like the Central Federal Reserve too much power is first, they pick winners and losers, right? So I showed you this chart. They clearly picked winners and losers. This is an act of policy, specific deliberate policy by the Federal Reserve to print money and distribute it in such a way that the ultra wealthy, the top 0.1% would get even wealthier while the bottom 50% would get nothing. That's the reverse Robin Hood aspect I talk about. That is a consequence of giving somebody too much power. If you gave me a printing press and no oversight and I could never get audited and you asked me softball questions twice a year in DC, dude, I'm going to go a little crazy with that over time, right? Because power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely, but nothing corrupts like a printing press with no oversight. Trust me, that's, that's, as, that's as corrupting as it possibly could get. And so this is just a chart of, of failure and social corrosion and all of that. And this is why the Federal Reserve needs to be eliminated. At a, and at a minimum, if we can't get that done, it needs to be heavily restrained, audited, and they have to explain their actions. Somebody needs to sit all the Federal Reserve chairmen down and say, Ben Bernanke, uh, Janet Yellen, uh, you know, Big J Powell, like this, this thing right here that you're doing, creating a vast gap in wealth between everybody else and this 0.1%, doesn't seem socially responsible. As well, hey, the Bank of England has a recent article. They just finally admitted that high house prices actually are determined by finance, not supply and demand of houses. Down at the bottom, there's a green line. There's a black line. They're coincident. They sit right on top of each other. That's the housing stock and the population. There's a real tight relationship between the number of people and the number of houses. But the prices go all over the place, right? And so uh, that's house prices in purple adjusted for inflation. And then the red is lending on uh, secured on dwelling. So guess what? Bubbles everywhere and always are a function of a good story and ample credit. So financing, credit creation, putting people in debt, that's what makes house prices go up and down. The Federal Reserve did this over and over again, right? Because um, at one point, right, this is under Ben Bernanke. Oh no, we had a housing bubble. What's the solution? I don't know. Let it crash and some people who shouldn't have bought 19 homes you know, they have to take a, a bit of a loss there and some banks lose some stuff too. Oh no, banks taking losses. Can't have that. Not, not acceptable. So they rammed interest rates down to 1% under Bernanke to save house prices. Well, that's fine. But the people who are already living in the houses, they don't need their house price saved. That doesn't help them any particularly. In fact, you could even argue that a more expensive home, which is what happens when you drive interest rates down, house prices go up. Everybody knows it. 
finally the Bank of England figured it out, but they're slow to the punch. The Bank of England's like always last to this party. I talked about this in 2008, completely obvious. They apparently just figured this out in 2017. <clears throat> so anyway, uh, but when you take, you know, housing stock and you say, oh no, we have to rescue its prices by definition, you reward the people who already have the homes and you lock out people who are ready to start households. That is taking in gross terms, one generation and throwing them under the bus to save the older generation. That's gross. That's disgusting. That's not how a civilized society would work, but that's how it happened, right? So the Fed sacrificed those who didn't have a house yet in preference for those who already had homes. Sorry, millennials and Gen Z. Sorry, not going to work out for you because the Federal Reserve is a redistributive organization. They're taking from those who can least afford it and giving to those who already have arguably more than they need, if not too much, right? That's who they are. You can argue about that all day long, but you can't argue with the data. That's just what the data says. So that's the Federal Reserve. And we need to begin putting these pieces together. Okay. So here's the crash course. The crash course is me trying to convince you that you need to be ready for a pretty grave set of consequences that are coming. One, because we abdicated our responsibility to provide proper oversight, have proper curiosity, have proper interest in what the Federal Reserve was up to. So guess what? They ran wild. Um, but as well, we, we have a number of other policy area, area errors that um, we need to talk about. So the crash course, chapter one, we have these three E's, the economy, energy, environment. If you understand how these come together, you begin to get a frame of the world that tells you this is all kind of unsustainable. That's all. That's his big conclusion. Like, there's a little unsustainable here. And so things are going to change. Now, you need to be forewarned and forearmed with that change information because then you can do something about it, right? Then you can take action, rally the troops, figure out what new skills you need, figure out where you're going to invest, understand where and how wealth transfers happen when we get over the tips of our monetary skis and print too much, which always happens, right? So that's... That's the point of putting this together into one big sort of systems level view to give you enough grounding so you know what's going on, right? And in chapter two, we talked about money and debt and banking. It had two of these two key key ideas here, right? These two key concepts. One, that money, this stuff we call money is actually currency. It's a claim on wealth. It's not actual wealth. It's just a claim on it, right? It's a claim on real wealth, primary, secondary wealth. We talked about that. If you haven't seen it, Go check out chapter two and a coincident thought there, which is, well, then what's debt? Well, debt is a claim on future money. And when you take those two concepts and you put them together with key concepts three and four, which is you're talking about how perpetual growth is now a requirement of our system of money. Well, now you have the framework to begin asking the more important questions, which is like, well, what is growth? Where does it come from? Is it reasonable or unreasonable to have everything pinned on this idea that we're going to have infinite exponential growth in our money system. If our money system is just claims on things. Good questions, right? So that's what we do. And the crash course talk about that. And of course, Federal Reserve, this is the headwaters of the Nile. You have to understand how this redistributive organization is going around and actually creating the conditions that are going to lead to a hastening of the demise of the overall system. Why? Because as Plutarch, the elder, said way back thousands of years ago 
The oldest and most fatal ailment of all republics is a gap between the rich and the poor. The Federal Reserve is doing everything it can to create as wide a gap as possible. That's creating social instability. And we should be talking about that. I don't believe anybody at the Federal Reserve went to school to understand how to social engineer anything. They're just monetary vandals out there doing what they do. And frankly, it's a giant problem. Now, if nobody else is going to talk about it, we're going to have to talk about it. And that's why we're doing what we're doing. The next chapter that's coming up after this is on inflation. And you're not going to want to miss that for sure. I'm showing food inflation here, but it's actually more than that. Once you understand the process of inflation, ah, now we are ready to actually begin to really dive into why this story feels so tenuous, like it's about to break at any moment here in 2023. This is something we're going to be talking about a lot back at Peak Prosperity in part two of this as well. Um, you could uh, freeze this and, and just read this, but um, this is the kind of testimonial that we get from our subscribers. I love this. This is a gentleman's uh, ex-military, lurked for a while, you know, didn't really dive in, didn't really, he said uh, he was adamant about not joining because he didn't want to become a doomsday prepper because he thought that's what Peak Prosperity was about. Um, but instead he found that most of the people in, uh, you know, uh, most of these online communities around getting ready for what's coming to be annoyingly paranoid, addicted to fear porn he says, however, I jumped in at some point with the least expensive membership determined not to get involved in any online discussions. Cause Hey, 99% of my experience with those other, it, those in other comment sections has been toxic and damaging to my own mental health. I totally know what you're talking about your guy. It's awful in a lot of these places. What I found at peak prosperity we're generally sane people having sane conversations and discussions about the realities of the situation during the pandemic, pandemic, scamdemic. In fact, I can honestly say that the message boards in the Peak Prosperity website are the only ones I enjoy because there are some very smart people there and the discussions are adult and polite. I upgraded to the full membership about a year ago and I'm enjoying being more involved. Read lots of other great stuff in there. So these... These are the kinds of testimonials we do get because we are, we're having non-insane conversations. It is time for you to understand that you have to be ready for what's coming or not your choice. One of the things I talk about is an adjustment reaction. That means that during periods of time like this that we're going through right now, anything you do today will probably seem like a pretty severe overreaction. Oh my God, I just bought a farm. I don't want a farm um, or, you know, oh, I put half, you know, put a lot of money into gold or silver or whatever your, your story is, it's going to feel really extreme on this side of the story. In a few years, looking back, you're going to realize that everything you did today was a severe underreaction, given the enormity of what we're talking about here in all of these slides and all this data. <clears throat> Again, I might be wrong, but I'm not confused. Challenge me, debate me. Let's talk about where I have it right, where I might have it wrong. But if you agree with all of this, that's fundamentally your gut, your head tells you that something is not right. I implore you, take action around that. We've created a whole community. It's very well moderated. We have wonderful people there. I invite you to come become a member at Peak Prosperity. We've make, we'll make it easy. 30-day free trial, no questions asked, money-back guarantee, come try it. What I care about is I care about that you become prepared. So whether you do it at Peak Prosperity or some other way, I'm agnostic. We do everything we can to help. And we've got a great community. I'm good at what I do. I'm an information scout. We got, and I'm pretty well prepared. We got people who are way more prepared than me. 
And this takes many, many dimensions. This isn't about buying beans and, and bunkers and all that. Your emotional resilience is exceedingly important. Your spiritual depth and resilience is exceedingly important. Your social capital that you have built up, the skills you have. I've just mentioned four things that don't require money to advance and, and bolster. So it can help, but you don't need it, right? So please come by Peak Prosperity or wherever you're going to go in this story so that you can become more prepared, more resilient, ready for what's coming. I hope you've enjoyed this chapter, chapter three of the Crash Course. Next one is chapter four on inflation. See you there next. Bye.